Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Such peace, immeasurable peace. Amen. I'm thankful to be in his presence this evening. If you will join me in the book of James chapter 2. I'm going to ask the Lord to just touch our hearts together. Amen. And let his word touch our hearts in this place. I want to draw closer to him. I really, really mean that. I want to draw closer to him and pray that the Lord would just touch our hearts together in this place. In the book of James chapter 2 and verse number 1, the Bible says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. You have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are not ye then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? And so with the practicality of the approach of James, we're going to talk tonight from the subject, the sin of partiality, and ask God to help us this evening to to not consider our neighbor, not consider our wife or our husband or our children. Let's just drop a mirror down in front of us this evening, and let's look at the person staring back at us and ask the Lord to help us to consider that image against his word this evening. I'm not going to give you my opinions. I'm just going to teach from his word this evening and ask God to touch us. We're gathered here tonight on purpose. Not that we're we're never gathered here with a purpose, but our purpose this evening is specific that we might learn how to let the word of God become light so that we can live for him every day. Praise God, and this will help us if we'll allow the word to touch us. And you can be seated, and thank you for standing, and thank you for your prayer and the faith that you have exhibited here tonight on behalf of others in this place. We are in a, a portion of the letter of James that addresses a real-world situation. So James is not, for the sake of just launching off here tonight, let's understand that James is not simply shooting in the dark hoping to hit something. He's not throwing a big net of generalities hoping that he can snag something. But James is addressing a real world situation that the leaders of the early church were faced with. And so apparently there were those in the first century church that despised the poor. And so lest we think that, you know, we are now in the 21st century and this in no shape, form, or fashion could possibly apply to us. Let's take the application of this passage of Scripture and 
contrasted against the hearts of men and our own hearts today. And uh, it's amazing that that we are uh, that James is having to address essentially a people that despise the poor given the fact that they had themselves been oppressed and falsely judged by the rich. So you would think that would have conjured up, given, given birth at least to a measure of uh, temperance in their heart or a measure of understanding and passion. Perhaps by showing favoritism to the rich, even though they had been abused by rich, maybe they hoped their favoritism would somehow win the favor of the rich their way. Who knows? But if we look at James chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? He asks a question, and then he makes a statement in verse 6. He says, But ye have despised the poor. I'm just going to take the first portion of verse 6 for a moment. He said, you have not God chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him, but you have despised the poor. So James points out an inconsistency between God's character and the character of the church, or at least the readers that he is reaching to, who apparently disrespected the poor. And so his first admonition in this scripture is that he uses the word hearken. It's not a word we use every day in our language today, but it's a simple message. It's a simple message. Listen. Amen. First, he was talking about partiality is inconsistent with God because God in his divine plan so intentionally and regularly chose the poor. And so when you go against the poor or you go against the outcast. You have gone against those that the Lord specifically has chosen to do his work. Amen. Secondly, the rich are inclined to blaspheme the believer's faith. That's what James is addressing. And so when he's saying when you favor the rich, then you are siding with those that would be more inclined to blaspheme or speak against your faith. So James, for us to be... um, absolutely confident that we're on the same page is not addressing what Jesus was addressing in the Beatitudes when Jesus in the Beatitudes was talking about poor. He was talking about poor in spirit. And James is not talking about poor in spirit. He's talking about those that are literally poor. He's talking about those that are in financial poverty and therefore considered by the world to be inferior. And so now when we, when we cast that last brushstroke on the canvas... We can kind of see our day coming into view now, can't we? So we have now exited sort of from the book of James and we have brought ourselves to right where we are today because there is certainly uh, a glance to those who have not as being lesser or inferior. But all through history, God has shown special concern and a special call upon the poor calling the economically deprived and the downtrodden of their day to himself. Through Moses, for example, he spoke to ancient Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8. He said, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any any people, for you were the fewest of all people. 
But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So the Lord said, just to remind them that I didn't choose you because you were the greatest, I chose you because you were the least. Amen. Solomon warned in, in the book of Proverbs, verse seven, chapter 17, verse five, but there, there's at least two or three other references to this in the writings of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. But specifically in Proverbs 17 and five, I'm just gonna read this. Solomon warns, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. And so be very careful before you mock the poor because God has connected himself to the poor. Amen. And then again in chapter 21, Solomon said, he will shut his ear to the cry he will shut his ears to the cry of the poor, will also cry to himself and not be answered. In the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, I think it's always been intriguing to me that God made all throughout this sacrificial rule or law, God made special provision for the poor. He made, uh, he made provisions for the poor to be able to give in an offering, no matter what, amen, they, if they couldn't afford a bull or a goat or a sheep, then the Lord said to you, we're gonna allow you to give a dove or a pigeon. As a matter of fact, there's a reference of scripture um, where you could even cast a handful of meal or flour or, or a substance of that sort to the Lord to give something to him. So God has always made a way for anyone whosoever will to be able to come into his presence. And so he made a way. In addition to that, every seventh year, all debts would be canceled so that a person would not be permanently in debt or this was before the days of bankruptcy or, or things of that nature, but to use a term that we can relate to so that there would be no such thing as that. Every seventh year, all debts would be canceled. That'd be pretty cool, huh? And every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, every person that was a bondman or a slave had an option. You can go free, or if you want to live where you're living, then you can just plainly say, I love my master. And if you say, I love my master, then your master is going to pierce your ears, so to speak, with an awl through the door jam. And that would be a mark or a sign that you were his and you could live there from then on. God always made wide provisions for the poor. Amen. My heart is touched when I read passages of scripture like this. But it doesn't end there. Crops in the field. In the book of Leviticus, the Bible says not to reap the corners of the field. Because he said the corners of the field are going to be left for those that have not. And so we're going to leave them, we're going to leave that on purpose. And we read in the book of Ruth, uh, we read about the handfuls being dropped on purpose because God was making provision for the poor. And so the harvest, the fields, corners of the fields were not to be harvested completely but the vineyards were not to be completely harvested. The orchards were not to be completely harvested because God was always going to make provision for those who didn't have 
everything that others have because God loves the poor. Amen. And so uh, in order for the, the poor to not go hungry, the Lord said, I'm gonna fix a way that you can glean from a harvest that you did not even plant. And so God established his people in Israel in ways and this was his people we're referring to. And God, God established his people in ways that carefully protected them and looked after them. And so since God has gone to so much trouble throughout history and throughout scripture to emphatically underline that he loves and that he cares for the poor, then I believe that something that should never be lost to the church in any era would be the fact that if God has that kind of concern, we had better have that kind of concern. We need to strive to be a reflection of that kind of love and that kind of care for those that are in need. Now, I know the challenge that I somewhat face here tonight because when we're talking about those that are in need, sometimes our mind just kind of rushes to the extreme of somebody who won't look after themselves, and that's not obviously what I'm talking about, but there are people who just genuinely have issues in their life that God is saying you need to love them through that and sometimes love them despite that and help them. Jesus told the rich young ruler this was his test. He said, go sell your possessions and do what with it? He said, give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And so the main purpose of this encounter was to test this man's willingness to follow the Lord at any cost. Go give what you have to those who have not. But the requirement Jesus made of him, I think, also reflects the, the Lord's continual concern for the welfare, the well-being, should I say, of the poor. Everyone who belongs to Christ has been blessed. Ephesians 1 and 3 says, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And so there will be no poor in heaven. Everyone is gonna be rich in the things that matter eternally. When we use terms, especially in America, when we use terms like rich and poor, uh, we've got a pretty broad spectrum of what we think rich would be or what we think poor would be. But it is, it is amazing when you look at the world's economy, how that the poorest, for the most part, in America would be incredibly wealthy by the world's standards. And so let's, let's get our minds off of just kind of dollars and cents or brackets. We may have certain people in and understand that, that God is looking for the downtrodden, the neglected, the deprived. I can tell you that against certain uh, measuring sticks, the wealthy among us this evening would be poor by some standards. And the poorest among us would be wealthy by some standards. So let's throw away our mental measuring sticks here for just a little while and understand the spirit of where James is going. And so when we think about that God, with God everything is balanced, it's a level playing field and every believer is gonna receive the same eternal life, the same heavenly citizenship in the kingdom of God, everyone is gonna stand on even ground. <clears throat> And so we think about now if we will move to verse number six and seven. Uh, I'm gonna read the, the remainder of verse number six. He said, but ye have despised the poor. He said, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme 
look at this phrase. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called worthy name? That's an interesting phrase. In other words, James said, don't you realize that it's the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Amen. The word oppress from the Greek means to tyrannize or to exercise an inordinate power over other people. Don't you realize that that's who is doing this to you? Even worse, they are the ones that, that James says blaspheme the worthy name by which you have been called. The worthy name refers to the name of Jesus, which is slandered and blasphemed by most enemies of the church. It is amazing how unpopular the name Jesus is even in even in some church circles. I, I know that's a little bit of a stretch for some of you to comprehend, but it's the absolute truth. Who would dare think that the name of Jesus would be such a dirty word among anyone who claimed to be a Christian? But it is true. James 2 and 8, he said, If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Verse number eight, of course, is a very far-reaching verse, and it goes well beyond the issue of favoritism or partiality. He said, if you love the Lord and you are fulfilling his royal law, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. Even when a sovereign king gives a decree, it becomes a binding law for everyone. In all of his subjects, when the king gives a decree... So when the king gives a decree, there is no court of appeals. There is no appeals process. The king said it. That is the end of the story. And this is what we must do. And so when we love the Lord and we are fulfilling his, his royal law, then we are loving our neighbor as ourself. I remember a, a number of years ago, I, I don't remember the exact year, but uh, our son was taking some piano lessons. I don't know if you would even remember how long ago that would have been. And uh, he was, am I right about that? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was taking some piano lessons. And it, there was a couple that lived just here in the Hatchbin area, but a little bit south of where we live. And uh, some friends of ours down in the, um, in the Homosassa area, the old Homosassa area, there was a... Um, there was a flash flood, and um, their home was completely engulfed among many, many others. But in a moment of time, I've shared some of this story before, but their home filled up probably in just a, just a matter of a few moments, um, maybe two, three feet or so, and then the back of their home, they had some um, French doors, and that, that area of the home is what gave way in the back of their home. And as I, I, I cannot describe this in its fullest degree, but it was as though their home, their possessions were just flushed out the back. And my wife and I, we saw this with our own eyes. It was, we just stood in stunned unbelief that in a moment of time, they almost literally lost everything they owned. And so we were sharing this with a young couple, the lady was uh, teaching our son a piano, and uh, so when we were sharing the story, they the, the man just went out 
And he said, let me, let me send some things with you. And he said, if we get this stuff back, fine. If we don't, fine. And so as he began to, uh, to load some things in our vehicle, they were avid campers. And they had everything imaginable to camp with. And so they were loading tents and just hundreds, if not, yea, even thousands of dollars worth of stuff into our car. I was shocked. So I thought to myself, I thought, well, they, you know, like a lot of times people get into some things and they kind of lose interest in it. So I thought, man, at some point they must have really got into camping and he just sees this as a way to kind of get some of this stuff out of his way. And uh, they were giving, it was all very, very top tier stuff. And so I asked him, finally, when I just saw the magnitude of what they were giving us, and he just kept saying, if we get this back, fine. If we don't, fine. And I finally asked him, I said, do you just not camp anymore? He said, no, we love to camp. We camp all the time. And my heart melted on the spot. Brother Polk, I thought, loving your neighbor as yourself. These were people that they had never met. They did not know them from anyone They just heard the story and they loaded hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of equipment up and said, if I get it back, I get it back. If I don't, I don't. don't." Amen. The Lord taught me a very, very powerful lesson standing there in their yard. I've never forgotten that. And to my knowledge, we got all of their equipment back to them. But the point remains the same, is that when he closed the back of our car, It was over for him. If I see this again, I see it. If I don't, I don't. But I want to make sure they're taken care of. Amen. Isn't that an incredible story? That's a true true story. Amen. So we need to understand the value of loving your neighbor as yourself. So when James calls this this royal law, in essence, it's the sum and the substance of the whole word of God, the complete word of God, Genesis to Revelation. But James focuses on a particular part of this royal law. He focuses on that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We find this first in Leviticus 19 and 18. And then Jesus, of course, refers back to it, declared it again in Matthew 22 to be the second of the great commandments. Jesus also made, made it clear when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. I, I don't think that kind of the word neighbor is thrown out there and then we're just left to guess and to wonder and fill in the blank on who the neighbor is. I think that Jesus made it clear who our neighbor is. You ready? When he gave us the story of the Good Samaritan. So this was not a man that was his literal neighbor. This is not John next door or Sally down the road. This was the man that he came upon, an absolute stranger that had a legitimate need. He was laying beaten half to death on the side of the road. And so our neighbor is that person in need and we are made aware of that need. And now we're gonna have to respond to that. What are we gonna do? And I understand that we can't fix and solve all the world's problems, but that doesn't mean that we just cross the street and walk on as though we didn't see anything happen because that's what others in the story of the Good Samaritan did. But just like the Good Samaritan, he selfishly and he generously 
met the needs of the man that he came upon in the road in, on, on the road to Jericho. Not only did the Samaritan minister to him personally, but as you remember, if you recall the story in detail, how that when he left the man in the end, that he said, if there is anything remaining, when I return, I will pay you. Whatever it has put you out, I will take care of that as well. And so he provided further care. He didn't just, he went beyond just the moment, in other words. If we move to verse number nine, he said, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. In verses eight and nine, begins with this conditional clause, but if you have respect to persons, you are committing sin or convicted by the law as transgressors. And so as mentioned before in my opening statement, this is a real world situation. This is not James with a scatter gun just shooting in the dark, hoping to hit something. This is James dealing with a real world problem. So at least some of the believers in the church to which James is writing was certainly guilty of such partiality. And then engaging by this behavior, James is saying you're committing serious sin. This is not just a, uh, this is not a small matter. This is a very serious thing. Furthermore, the law thereby convicted them as transgressors. With that said, let's look through a clear and concise lens. Just as loving our neighbor as oneself fulfills the royal law according to scripture, and that gives us sure evidence that we are a child of God, I believe that habitual partiality transgresses that divinely revealed law and gives sure evidence that we are not a child of God. Amen. So it's not now about how high we jump, how fast we run, how high we can raise our hands, how loud we can sing, but when we are showing partiality, it reveals the nature of who we are, the character of who we are. The seriousness conveyed here is is not something that can be overlooked because partiality is not merely a matter of being inconsiderate, but James says this is serious sin. We've got to look at this. James builds on this truth by saying, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all because God's law is unified or God's law fits together. It's like taking a window and and, uh, hitting it with a hammer. You don't just break the piece that you hit, you break the whole thing. And so when we transgress against some, we transgress against all. Amen. In the same way, we perceive some sins as being less than others. Now, we've all been guilty of this to some degree because we've all color-coded our stories, haven't we? White lies and it was just sort of, kind of, (laughs) <laughs> and we minimize one thing as being real bad and this not being quite so bad, but God's law fits together. And so we have to take it very, very seriously. James shares with us this one simple truth that breaking even one of God's commandments shatters the unity of God's holy law and it turns this guilty person into what the scripture says, a transgressor. Amen. You know, uh, it's just human nature to kind of minimalize things the closer associated we may be to the situation. And if you read about a situation in the paper, you don't know really, you don't have any personality to go with this name. You just kind of read about the crime. We can just kind of make one assessment about that. 
but somebody else that we know may be guilty of the same thing, but because we know them and we say, you know, that's just not like them. There's just a missing piece of the puzzle here somewhere. We kind of give a little bit of leniency, some latitude, some, some give in the situation. And so when we think about the word of God, it's unyielding and, and unbending. And so when, when we think about breaking one of the Lord's commandments, that we become a transgressor that because God's law is unified. And so what James is trying to say is wake up and be careful. Amen, you've got to be careful here because this is very, very serious, serious business. And so as an illustration, James quotes from Exodus chapter 20, and we find that quote in the 11th verse of the second chapter of James. He said, for he that, he, for he that said, do not commit adultery, Exodus 20 is the, the Ten Commandments, and so James is kind of quoting now from the Ten Commandments, and he said, the, the same one that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law because the law is connected. It is one piece. And so we can say, well, I didn't commit adultery, I just committed murder. But we have to, at the end of the day, realize to say that I have broken the law and became a transgressor, become a transgressor of the law. And so, you know, James does kind of jump off the deep end here and chooses two of the most seemingly serious, at least social sins, and we would agree with that. But he could have used any ones of of God's laws to make the same exact point, that if you break one, you you just as well to have broke them all because broke is broke. Amen. So it only takes the breaking of one commandment, any commandment, to become a transgressor of the law. And so you you don't have to be doing 107 to get a speeding ticket. You could just be doing 37. And if the speed limit is 25... We can say, well, what's the big deal? It was just 37. But you're going to stand in the same courtroom before the same judge, right? Because you broke the law. Behind you, chances are, to some degree, I understand there's some, a little differences here, but just stay with me. To some degree, in a few minutes, the fellow that can be standing right where you're standing may be guilty of murder. But it's the law. That's what's at risk here, and that's what James is talking about here. It's the law, and so it takes only the breaking of one. The Jews tended to regard the law as a, uh, as a series of, uh, how should I say it, uh, maybe detached commands. They were just, just all singular commands. And so if we would think about this in the Jewish mindset of the day, and if we were just to kind of look at this one at a time, <clears throat> The Jews kind of looked at keeping the commandments as whatever commandments I keep, I'm gaining credit over here. And whatever commandments I'm breaking, I'm incurring some debt over here. And so at the end of the day, I can just do a little addition and subtraction. And as long as it's a positive number, (laughs) amen. Now, I want to take it out of the Jewish mindset. I want to drop us right into 2017. That's exactly where we are today. Because people say, well, you know, I may have done it, but you know, well, look what all I did over here. And so as long as we come out with a positive number at the end of the day, we feel like it ought, ought to be all right. But God is saying, no, no, no. Nothing can be further from the truth. 
Because it's not that concept that if we keep more than we break that God is still going to be okay with it. Amen. It's not going to work that way. The whole concept is unbiblical. Amen. But it is firmly believed. Hear me today, tonight. Amen. This is a firmly believed position by many, many people today. That I just cussed a little bit. I just did a little bit. I just drink a little. I just do a little. And so what difference does it make? It makes a difference because you're breaking a law. There's the difference, is that you're breaking a God-given law. And so we can't say, well, I've got more pluses than I have minuses, and I, I ought to be all right, because God is looking at the law, and we're going to be judged against the law. And that's where the Scripture is going to have to line up in our lives to every corner. And so we have, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture says that. I believe we would all admit that here. And so the only thing that's ever going to save us is the blood. Amen, I need the blood of the lamb applied to my life. And the question is how much good can we do? The question rather isn't how much good can we do to offset the bad that we've done. The question is how do I get the blood applied to my life? Not how can I offset this, but how can I fix this? Not how can I just bring the scales back into balance, but how can I perpetually bring balance back into my life? Amen, we need the blood applied to our lives to cover our sins. Amen. And not an altar of repentance one time somewhere way back in our history, but an everyday altar of repentance that we kneel in and say, God, I need you to touch me and help me today. Amen. How do we apply or get that blood applied to our life? The answer is found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In verse number 37, they asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? Or in other words, they said, how can we be saved? We're still being asked that question Today, in 2017, what must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? Peter, without as much as even clearing his throat, said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Then he said, what a lovely illustration that Brother Rayleigh gave just a few Sundays ago. Amen. Then he said, the promise is to you. Amen. And to all that are afar off. Amen. Whosoever the Lord will call. Amen. Those call. There are some. Amen. That the Lord is still calling today. And when he calls in their heart and beckons them, let him, or let them rather find a church with a ready answer. Amen. A mind that is made up feet that are firmly planted, amen, on this Acts 238 plan of salvation. Not somebody that's thinking about it, considering it, trying to weigh out the odds, but when they said, what must I do to be saved? Peter stood up with the 11 and he confirmed Matthew 28 and 19 and said, this is what you must do in order to be saved. Praise God. Praise God. Simon Peter's response outlines the plan of salvation. God doesn't count and keep a record of good things and bad things. Amen. To see what's going to outweigh what. When God looks at our life in judgment, he's looking for one thing. He's looking for the blood. I want that blood applied to my life. When I do wrong, I want the Holy Ghost. Amen. I want the Holy Ghost to convict me of that wrong then and there. 
amen, when I have walked too far this way, I want the Holy Ghost to say, that's far enough, and I want to back up. If I've touched something, I shouldn't have touched. If I've, if I've said something, I shouldn't have said. If I've done something, I shouldn't have done. I want to find an altar, of a place. I want to find a place of repentance and say, God, I need you to apply that blood again to my life. Amen. I'm thankful for the blood, aren't you? Praise God. I'm thankful for the blood. Praise the Lord. In verse number 12, in verse number 12, the Bible says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Do this, understanding that there's a judgment day coming. Praise the Lord. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. What a scary, frightening thing. No mercy to those who have showed no mercy. Because partiality is such a serious sin, James closes this section with an appeal for believers to fully consider the danger of divine judgment. He says, speak and do as those things who are to be judged by the law of liberty. I mean, this would be like someone saying today in our language, stop living like the world and live like you have the Holy Ghost inside. Praise God. One of James' major themes is that is that a person's real faith is going to be manifest in and through his works. Amen, Brother Osborne mentioned that Sunday. Amen, that there's going to be something manifested in our life. It's going to be visible. Somebody's going to be able to see some works in our life. He later says in this chapter that just as the body is without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. And so if we have a genuine relationship with the Lord, then we will live and we will act like we have a genuine relationship with the Lord. Amen. I want to ask you to stand. I'm truly find, trying to find an ending here. <clears throat> Our musicians would come. Genuine <clears throat> redemption produces it produces something in our life. It really, really does. Genuine redemption. It produces obedience in our life. It, it, it produces holy living that's going to be characterized by some manner of good works. There's going to be something that shows what we are. Living faith is going to be demonstrated by a holy life, a separated life, a life that doesn't look like the world. We don't act like the world, look like the world, walk like the world, think like the world, or we should not at least. We, we, the, the Lord needs to change the prism of our our, of our spiritual mind. I want to be able to see the things that God would point out to me in this day. James is saying this, I can tell by the way that you live. He said, there's something missing in your relationship with the Lord. There's, there's something missing there. Amen. So I want to find that missing piece. I can find that through the word of God, his light shining. And, amen. I want to find that and I want to work on that. The gospel is referred to in, by James as the, the law of liberty. I, I think there's a purpose for that because there is a liberty that comes to those who place their faith in the Lord. <clears throat> a liberty from bondage and a liberty from judgment, a liberty from the permanence of sin. And it brings us ultimately into an eternal freedom and an eternal glory. The Holy Ghost frees us to serve the Lord. It really does. Amen.
Some people have said many times, I've heard people say, I just don't think I can do this. Well, you probably can on your own. That's why you need the Holy Ghost. That's why we all need that. We need that not one-time experience, but that renewing and reliving that moment again and again and again and again. Amen. It frees us to follow the Lord willingly out of love and not reluctantly out of fear. In every sense, the royal law of God. As a further warning of word of warning, James says in verse 13 that judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. That's frightening to me. It really is. And so I want to be as merciful as I possibly can. I want to give as much mercy as I possibly can. Amen. I ask God to touch us today. Praise the Lord. Amen. Would you just stand maybe perhaps where you are. You can let that particular place become an altar and God can touch our hearts in this house this evening. Amen. The altars are open. Certainly you can free to come to the front if you'd like. Amen. Let's magnify the Lord together. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Thank you for the hope of the Holy Ghost. I praise you, Lord, and ask you to be our strength here this evening. In the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.